Our scripture reading today comes from uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 31. You may want to uh, dog-ear your Bible on that page because we'll maybe be turning to that a bit this year. It's our uh, sort of our focus verse for the year. And uh, if you're like me at all, you've always been a little intrigued by this uh, scripture. And um, I'm really quite excited about seeing what this year has to hold, uh, exploring it. So uh, I'll be reading from NIV. It is entitled in my Bible, Christ Crucified is God's Power and Wisdom. Verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Thanks, Laura. So we are uh, celebrating the beginning of a new school year. Uh, even long after we leave the school routine, uh, it, it seems to be ingrained in us for life, that this is a, a new season. The new season begins in September. Uh, so Darren said it was uh, four years since he was in school. I, I realized uh, this week it was 20 years uh, since I uh, lived with a, a good friend of mine for the first time in my second year of university. And uh, I was going to call him up and say, hey, uh, 20 years ago, uh, but it, it sounded depressing, so I <laughs> just kind of left it at that. 20 years is a long time, but we, uh, we had good times together then. So, just trying out a new... There we go. Uh, <clears throat> school is a time when we want to sort of put together uh, a good appearance. Um, for me, it's important that I'm sending my kids to school in new clothes. They might not wear new clothes uh, five days a week, but I want them to wear new outfits at least on the first day of school. 
this is something that my parents had too. We might not have had enough money for fancy clothes, but at least on the first day of school, we had crisp new clothes. Uh, and then when you get to high school, clothes are still important, but you have to have your, the rest of your appearance together. You have to have a look. You have to have a, an identity carved out. And then in university, you're starting all over again. You have to kind of be uh, unique and smart and interesting because everybody in university is smart. You don't want to look foolish. You don't want to be the one who accidentally got into university. None of us wants to look foolish uh, when we get to school. None of us wants to look foolish in our day-to-day lives. Uh, I was uh, sort of, as I was reading this over, and I was contemplating the, the foolishness and wisdom divide, I was thinking about legacies, uh, about how we get to be remembered. Um, I went to this restaurant. This is uh, a photo of uh, the Marche restaurants in Toronto. I don't know how many of you have, have been there. Uh, they're fantastic. You walk in there, they give you a little credit card type thing, and they have a whole bunch of different little vendors, uh, and you go from one to the next, and you just take what you want, and they swipe your card, and then at the end, you pay for it. Uh, so they always have a really good little potato booth. I got uh, this Swiss uh, potato pancake type thing, and then you go to the rotisserie chicken section, and then you go to the seafood section. It's, it's great. Uh, <clears throat> And uh, I, was, I was enjoying the experience, and uh, somewhere during the course of the meal, I had to, to visit the men's room, and I looked around, and there was a little note scribbled on the bathroom wall. Very rarely are these worth repeating in a, in a sermon. Uh, but I looked, and it said, do not work at this place. There, there may have been a few other words written in there, um, but that's the filtered version. But it seemed to me this incredible contrast that I had just had a a wonderful meal uh, sitting with good and cherished friends. We enjoyed our time there, enjoyed the food, enjoyed the atmosphere. And yet there was a memento of this not being a good situation. Right? I might have remembered it good, and yet somebody in Uh, inside of the institution remembered it entirely differently than me. And it it struck me that if if something happened, if there was, uh, let's say, a a volcanic eruption happened and that that restaurant was abandoned for a hundred years, everything else would wash away. Historians would come back to that restaurant and wonder what life at that restaurant was like, and they might only find that scribbled note. Right? Everything else might have gotten taken away or burned up in the flames, but somehow that note would survive. This is sort of how, how history often works, uh, that we want to uh, hold on to a certain kind of legacy, and yet that legacy escapes us. So what would happen if, if this wasn't uh, just a, a, a hill of dirt? This was, in fact, a dormant volcano, and it wiped the, the building away, and 100 years later... Uh, historians came to see what was this place. Well, hopefully our archives would survive and they would flip through there and see that we were a people of faith and uh, togetherness. I don't know. Uh, 
That would, be, that would be ideal. That's probably not what they would find, right? Maybe somebody has scribbled a note on a, on a post here somewhere, uh, and that's what, the, that's what the historians would find. This summer, I was at a museum in Brantford, Ontario, and uh, they were explaining how the, the building, an old schoolhouse, uh, needed to be converted, it needed to be updated, uh, new piping, new wiring, all of that stuff. Well, this uh, building, this old schoolhouse, served for quite a long time as a residential school. Uh, and this is a, a story that uh, many people are familiar with, but children would be taken here, uh, taken from their families, and uh, they would be brought here, and a big part of their education was, uh, was an attempt to remove their culture and their uh, language and their heritage. And one of the things that they found as they were ripping off old boards to kind of put the pipes through in the secret places where they were supposed to go is they found toys. They found notes. They found books that had been hidden there for a hundred years. You see, when the children were taken, their parents would give them toys and mementos as a way of, that they would have something to play with, something to enjoy. Something to remember their parents by while, when they were away at school. But if the toys were made uh, in the uh, traditional style out of corn husks and whatever, then these would be seen as cultural artifacts and inferior and the children would have them taken away or they would be discouraged from playing with them. So the kids would, would figure this out and so they would hide them in clever places so that they could play with them in secret. And so the construction workers uh, told the story of how when the boards came off and some of these things would fall out. They would gather them up. They were confused. What are these things? They would ask the elders, and the elders would tell the stories. And the elders would remember. These were cherished artifacts. And so what was remembered, what, the, what did the historians find of that school? They didn't find math lessons. They didn't find Bible lessons. They didn't find uh, teacher lists. They found the toys hidden by students who didn't think that they could play with them. Uh, <clears throat> history has a way of uh, <clears throat> selecting certain things. Uh, and it's often those kind of scribblings of things that aren't supposed to be there, graffiti uh, in a way that, that gets uh, remembered. Uh, there's, there's an artist uh, named Banksy. Some of you might know that name. <clears throat> Banksy is, is an anonymous artist. In, in, nobody knows who he is. Uh, somehow, a whole bunch of people know but aren't telling. Um, <clears throat> and so Banksy paints... Uh, essentially graffiti. He does it secretly. Uh, he does it in places he's not supposed to do it. And when a Banksy appears, people come from miles, hundreds of miles away to see the Banksy work. This, this is a, a Banksy painting. Uh, so if you have a, a close look, you'll see this is, uh, this is graffiti. This is just painted on a wall somewhere. Now, if you look closely at the face, you'll recognize that that's the face of Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, the CEO of uh, Apple Computers. 
That's his face, and that's sort of his signature look with a, with a tight black uh, long sleeve t-shirt and blue jeans. So that's Steve Jobs, but he's holding a knapsack over his shoulder. Uh, the, the body is recognizable, but the, but the pose is not Steve Jobs. The pose is that of an immigrant, not just an immigrant, a refugee. This is someone who has picked up their stuff and has fled. And so, while the world is in a refugee crisis, why did Banksy paint this wealthy man as a refugee? Well, it's because Steve Jobs descends from, has ancestors who were refugees from Syria. It happened a long time ago. It wasn't uh, this current uh, group. But when you put those two pictures together, then all of a sudden we get this idea. Hey, these refugees we are accepting from Syria have just as much potential as Steve Jobs. Right? This is graffiti, but it's incredibly powerful and profound graffiti. Uh, Alberta has a history of... Uh, <coughs> of graffiti as well. Um, so a few summers ago, we had the opportunity to visit Writing on Stone uh, Park uh, way down south in Alberta. And there's this uh, outcropping of rock in the, in the middle of uh, essentially desert down there. And there are uh, beautiful drawings of, of horses and warriors. Uh, there are incredibly beautiful stories of of how somebody got to uh, have their story told on that rock. And, and after somebody had an, a significant accomplishment, uh, then their story would be carved in. The elders would write that in there to tell the story for generations. Uh, and then we got here. Uh, and then they thought, hey, this is kind of cool. And then any idiot with a pocket knife all of a sudden could have their name on the story. No offense to uh, Jim Harvey and his uh, um, legacy. Um, but the, the approach to this stone was entirely different from one people to the next. And so there's, there's this incredible contrast between uh, the stories of people and their, and their spiritual journeys carved into the side of the rock, and Joe Schmo was here. Right? Those two don't seem to belong on the same rock. And over the course of history, uh, those things change. Uh, this is another piece of graffiti uh, that is part of our story as, as the church. Uh, this is a, uh, an ancient piece of, of Roman graffiti just kind of dug up in a cave somewhere. Uh, one of these things that was forgotten until historians looked it up, and all of a sudden there's, there's an important picture here. Uh, so... What's happening there is, is there's a cross, there's a figure on a cross, uh, and there's a man standing at, at the foot of the cross. Well, the inscription in Latin uh, says Alexaminos, which was a person's name. Uh, it says Alexaminos worships his God. So Alexaminos is the guy there, and uh, the person on the cross with a donkey's head is Jesus. So we get a picture of what Roman life was like for Christians. Uh, they got uh, teased and ridiculed just like the rest of us. 
And so here is uh, this artifact preserved in time. That here is this little piece that we can think back almost 2,000 years, and here is a man who is being ridiculed for his belief. Jesus is being ridiculed. Alexamenos is being ridiculed. Uh, now, it's, it's easy to understand uh, the ridicule, uh, and it's easy to see, I, I think, easy to see the contrast between the historical record uh, and what people were, were thinking at the time. So if we look at the text here, so this is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 again. Uh, Paul is presenting the expectations of the different groups. The Jews, of course, had their expectations. They had been hoping and praying for years that somebody would come. Not just anybody, but the promised Messiah would come. And even if it wasn't going to be the promised Messiah, whoever wanted to, but especially they were hoping that the Messiah would come and get the Romans out. And any leader that came would do that. And if somebody would come and couldn't get rid of the Romans, they were no leader to the Jews. The Jews were waiting for their promised Messiah who would restore Israel. And to restore Israel, you had to take away the occupiers. That was what made sense for the Jews. Um, the scholars of the day, the religious experts, they were, they were clear, they were unified on what the Bible promised about what the Messiah was going to do, what kind of power the Messiah was going to have. They were unified. This was the accepted understanding. This was the wisdom of the day of who the Messiah was going to be. Now, uh, by the time Paul is bringing his message to other parts of, of, of Europe and the known world, uh, by the time he gets there, the rumors of who Jesus was may have come and gone for a lot of people. But Paul comes with news of, of Jesus, uh, stories of things that Jesus has done, uh, but he doesn't come just as a traveling salesman. He he enters into a spiritual and religious marketplace, essentially. Uh, so just like the restaurant where I found the note left by the disgruntled employee, this was a place where you could go and hear from, from one traditional worldview, from one religion, from, it, from somewhere far away, from the ancient local religion, whatever it was, all of those voices were there competing, and the different teachers and the different prophets would, would raise their voices trying to get prominence. This was a Greek society. So it was a Roman, uh, Roman occupation at the time, uh, Roman government, but these were remnants of, of Greek society, that the philosophers were celebrities. And so to be a good philosopher, you had to be convincing. You had to win people to your side. You had to demonstrate uh, that the idea that you were teaching had power and authority. So the most convincing ideas of the day won, but Jesus' death. Uh, Jesus' death was the least convincing idea possible. You can imagine the, the presentation of worldviews that people were talking about new economic systems. And they're trying this system in a new city, and in that city there are jobs everywhere. And somebody else is presenting a new understanding of military warfare, and they could point to the generals who use this strategy and, 
achieve victory. And here's Paul. Paul is talking about a prophet. Paul is talking about a divine figure who has so much power that he died. What? Paul, who are you? Where do you come from? What? How is this idea fitting within this marketplace? That idea doesn't have power. That idea doesn't have authority. If your idea gets you killed, it's a weak idea in the eyes of these Greeks and Romans. But Paul emphasizes the word scandal here in verse 23. This isn't just an impediment to understanding, right? Scandal wouldn't be the right word if it was just a difficult concept to grasp. But a scandal, a scandal shocks you. A scandal doesn't fit the way that it's supposed to. A scandal is more than an impediment to understanding. A scandal is, is a different understanding. A, a scandal is, is something that doesn't fit at all, not just has to be reworked a little bit. So um, going back to the beginning here, uh, what, what Paul is doing, uh, he's, he's sort of quoting Isaiah. Um, so what he's, he's doing, he's referring back to uh, to the prophet Isaiah, right, where he says it is, it is written. Um, this is written back in Isaiah. Uh, and it's Isaiah 29, if you want to look it up later. Uh, so he's using this as a way of legitimizing what he says to the Jews. The Jewish audience would have recognized these words. Okay, yes. Uh, God did say that through Isaiah. We have to recognize that. Um, but he's, he's doing this as a way of reminding them. Uh, because the Jews got caught up in a lot of the same garbage that we do. Right? We aren't content with a lower status in society. Right? We want to advocate for greater respect. We want to advocate for greater political influence. We want to have uh, more legitimacy in the eyes of the world. And this is what the Jews wanted too. So the Jews had sort of forgotten... Uh, that the prophets had said this. So maybe now with these words, uh, Paul has won a few of his Jewish audience uh, over to his way of thinking. Um, now, to, to ridicule political leaders is, is sometimes a little bit too easy. Right? I, could, I could easily uh, earn some laughs here by making fun of this politician or that politician. It's sort of low-hanging fruit. It's, it's pretty easy to do. They just keep giving us reasons to make fun of them. Um, but here, uh, Paul isn't just kind of making fun of them. He's, he's talking about their demise, the things that are going to bring them down. So we don't exactly know what those are. But uh, Paul is talking about their uh, impending failure. Now, uh, the people in the audience might very well know. Um, he might be talking, they might say, oh, well, yeah, they've uh, started this new policy or they, they started this war that they shouldn't have. It seems to be that all of us know that our political leaders uh, inevitably will fail. Uh, that at some level they're going to get so full of themselves 
uh, that they're going to forget to consult and they're going to forget to um, make, see if it's a good decision and they're just going to do whatever they want and it's going to blow up in their faces. So when, when Paul is asking about this, where are the, the wise, where are the experts, uh, he's sort of challenging them. Well, you guys know who's supposed to be wise. Are they really wise? You know who the experts are supposed to be. Are they really experts? <clears throat> Paul is pointing at failures, reminding his audience of the failures of the leaders of his day. So he's asking them to think of examples, uh, and it's just, <clears throat> it's an easy game to play. Think of your leaders. Think of the people who are supposed to be in charge. Think of the people who are supposed to be telling us what wisdom is. Where's their wisdom getting them? It's a pretty obvious question. Jesus does, does a very similar thing. Uh, the the re first recorded teaching of, of Jesus in, in Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount, and it begins with these beautiful words that we, we sang so beautifully um, before, <clears throat> there's this contrast, uh, this contrast of expectations. Jesus says, hey, think about the, the, the hopeless. Think about the, the, the poor in spirit. Think about those who grieve, who mourn. Think about the, the humble, the meek. Whatever words you put in there, by, by most understandings of wisdom, these are not at the, the pinnacle of society. Uh, these people aren't waiting for a reward. Uh, their status is the consequence of their choices by mainstream expectations. That if you are meek, you will get less. That if you are sad, you will always be sad. These, these are the, the, the pressures that we feel from people, that we can't just be meek because then we uh, will sort of earn our lower status. We can't just continually grieve, we've got to be happy like everybody else. These are the pressures we face, uh, but this is not uh, the message that Jesus is giving us. Uh, going back to the beginning of, uh, of the reading here, when we, when we look at this verse, I, I think we really need to re-examine what this word saved means. Uh, second half of verse 18 but it is the power of God for those of us who are being saved. Now, in a, in a spiritual context, uh, saved has sort of a predetermined meaning. For those of us who are being saved, those of us who get to go to heaven, uh, is sort of the, the reading that we give that. Uh, but that's, uh, that's, a, that's a pretty narrow reading of those words. So, uh, when we look at this, when those who are being saved, if we, removed the, if we remove the spiritual meaning there, then we start to ask the question, what are they being saved from? So this isn't just a, a new spiritual status. When the, the power of God, the, the wisdom of God in contrast to the wisdom of the world is, in fact, wisdom if you are being saved from something, if you are being saved to something. Jesus lived a life of weakness. Uh, Jesus was essentially, essentially homeless. Uh, Jesus collected no wealth of his own. Uh, Jesus relied on the charity of other people. 
Uh, Jesus never really earned a, a high level of status and ultimately died as an executed criminal. Jesus understood weakness. Jesus understands your weakness and my weakness and the weakness of this world. So, for the people who are being saved from their weakness, then the foolishness of the cross is wisdom and power. Jesus understands the failures of worldly wisdom. The the perspective that, that God has seeing the failures of those who rise to power gives gives God an opportunity to see that this is, in fact, not wisdom. And when we align ourselves with God, then our human weakness is relatively inconsequential when we see the power that God has and we see the failures of the wisdom of the ages. The kingdom endures. The kingdom of God endures not because the strength that it shows by overcoming uh, human enemies. The kingdom endures because it relies on a different kind of power. The kind of power that is shown on the cross. The kind of power that looked foolish to the Jews who were expecting a dominating Messiah. The kind of power that, that looked irrelevant to the Greeks looking for uh, power of ideas Uh, and and influence that way. But the wisdom of the cross is a wisdom of love and self-sacrifice because those values will always survive. Those values will always win out in the end. And when we live that way in our classrooms, in our workplaces, in our communities, when we suffer as a way of showing love to other people, then however foolish that might look, That is the wisdom of the cross. That is God's wisdom. And when we live that way in this world, we may look foolish, but we carry with us the wisdom and the power of Almighty God. Amen.